Blog Talk Radio. February 15th, 2017 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, and this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism uniquely upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff, and I see there's some people kind of filing into the chat room here over at Blog Talk Radio. I know a lot of people refresh at the top of the hour. Welcome if you're joining me today. Sorry, I was a little bit late on posting program notes and title and all that good stuff. Um, I was kind of tired. I was not getting a whole pile of sleep last night, but so goes life. Um, I may want you guys to call in and participate in the discussion, uh, add a little bit of energy. Oh, can people not hear me? Kay Doolittle in the chat room is having a hard time with the sound. Hopefully, if you guys refresh, you'll get some sound. I'll go ahead and type refresh into the chat room. Okay, people are saying the audio is okay. Excellent, excellent. Go to the blog at don'tletitgo.com. You'll see I took a little bit of artistic license with the title, given that it's Valentine's Week, Sex, Love, and Whistleblowers. There's much less to do with sex and love and a lot more to do with whistleblowers and some stuff on Netanyahu and Israel in the program notes, as you'll see. As I said, don'tletitgo.com is the place to check out the program notes. Um, so there's been a couple of controversial things that I've done in the last week. One was intellectual and the other was physical. So the first is the discussion with Yaron Brook on immigration. And I don't know if anybody wants to talk to me about, about that or not, but let me just kind of give you guys what I thought was accomplished in that and what my goal was. My goal was to have your own address in a systemized way, an organized way, all of the main questions that were out there on, you know, in this debate as I saw them and I think we did a really good job of that. We spent 90 minutes. It was pretty much solid. We had a little bit of sound trouble at the very beginning. We got that, you know, fixed as much as possible right away. Um, it was not a debate. So, for example, yes, Yaron sometimes did make some comments that were a little bit, you know, insensitive about the other side. Some people were saying, oh, you know, sweeping generalizations. There was not a debate. So I was not in a situation where I wanted to prevent one guest from verbally abusing another guest. The other guest had dropped out, had said that he was incapable of refraining from such language. And, you know, I said something to Yaron at the beginning about the tone of the debate. 
you know, and, and it, you know, you won't even apologize when he made a comment here or there. People were way overreacting to whatever level of tone Euron used during that discussion. It was pretty darn mild compared to what you see on the other side of the debate. So I don't even want to hear it. I actually unfriended somebody about it. I'm, I'm basically, you know, done with all of that. Um, the other, but you know, the other thing is I think that we got out on the table, the, you know, an organized presentation of the views. It's going to be the basis, you know, Euron talked about eventually having ARI release a written statement on it. He's going to do some lectures on it. So you're going to see more of this. And I think the purpose of the discussion was accomplished. Uh, like I said, I, you know, thought in my mind about how can we get everything out on the table from Euron. He had said pretty much everything that he had said there in little bits and pieces and other places. The one thing I pushed him on that he hadn't really talked about so much before is this issue of treating a country like a gated community with CCNRs. And we had, we got a little bit of, of that going as well. Uh, so that was my goal. I think given that that was the goal, I think we had a really good discussion. People are always going to be unhappy with that sort of thing, especially, like I said, when this is a hotly debated topic, you know, again, I, I did my very best and I think we accomplished quite a lot. Uh, people say, okay, the audio is okay. Civility is an objective value. Yes. Civility is an objective value. And I, and I think he was, you know, pretty much civil there. Yeah. Some of the comments, whatever. Anyone make a spreadsheet of your own answers? I don't know. Um, you pretty much could, right? Because I asked him to kind of go through and I think he addressed all of the different permutations and combinations of the situations that I was asking him about. Um, and it, you know, again, like I said, just, just get him on record addressing all of the different things that people had asked about. And it was, a, I think, a very productive use of the 90 minutes. The link is in the program notes. If you haven't heard it yet, go ahead and go take a listen to it. And, you know, you can go ahead and leave comments. Leave polite comments, please, if you're going to leave comments at, at the blog. If you don't, you know, like it, you can just somewhere on social media talk to all your friends about how bad it was or something. And that's fine. Um, the other thing, oh, the other controversial thing I did in the last week is I put the ring back in my nose. Some people know 20 years ago, I caused this stir by showing up in an objectivist conference with a ring in my nose. And so I decided, oh, I think I'll just go ahead and do that again. Heraclitus said, you can't step in the same river twice, but maybe what you can do is you can step into a very different river wearing the same nose ring and just have that kind of sense of continuity. <laughs> Ken in the chat room says, go jump in a social media lake. <laughs> go pound sand. I mean, there's all kinds of ways to put this, right? Um, okay, some people in the chat room like the nose ring. You know, I've, I had I posted this picture with the nose ring and I had only done it maybe five, 10 minutes before. And you know, I knew it was the right decision to do because, you know, I'm I'm de definitely kind of, you know, a, a vain person. So if I'm taking selfies, sometimes I have to take a bunch to be happy with one. I took one of this and it was within five, 10 minutes after I'd gotten the, the ring done. And yeah, it's a little bit red or whatever, but just, I mean, I was really happy having made the decision. I liked the way that the guy did it, everything. Um, you know, nose rings are reversible. It's not like tattoos where you know, you have to go get a billion 
laser treatments with a lot of pain and stuff to undo it. If I get sick of this thing, I just take it out and the thing closes up and heals again. So it is pure fun. And so, yeah, I enjoyed it. Went ahead and put it out there. So I put this picture publicly posted on Facebook and people are just like bawling and like, oh, this is terrible. And somebody said, oh, it's your inner barbarian as if I'm some barbarian. One thing I want to talk about today is this issue of optional value choices that people can make. I was having a discussion with someone about homosexuality and shouldn't objectivism condemn homosexuality because, you know, there is actual a physical basis for heterosexuality relationships between a man and a woman and, you know, for the survival of the species and all this kind of stuff. And I mean, theoretically, right. I put this thing in my nose, it could get infected. It sort of interferes, you know, if you get a cold, the process of blowing your nose or something, especially while it's healing, it's kind of painful, whatever. Um, I'm putting my life at risk, right. By putting this ring in my nose. Uh, not so much, right? That you know, this is this is a decoration. Sometimes we take a little bit of a risk to do things that are decorative. People put earrings in their ears, and there's always risk of infection and stuff there as well. Obviously, there's some piercings where you might say, okay, it's a little bit questionable. But this thing, it's it's decorative. It's very little investment. You can take it out. It heals up as long as you take care of it right and you get it done right. It's it's pure fun. But yeah, I think. I think I've lost. Oh, someone says, oh, someone says yuck in the chat room, but the yuck might be about survival of the species and, and a collectivist idea. Yeah. So we can, we could talk a little bit about that. And I was going to talk about that under the heading of sex, but like I said, I took artistic license with the title because I'm not really going to talk about sex so much as sexual abuse scandal in the church. How's that for a switch? And then this issue of, you know, sexuality, homosexuality, shouldn't objectivism condemn it or not? And, and this discussion I was having with a, a friend about it. <sighs> Jay in the chat room says, if our biological imperatives don't keep our species alive, so be it. I won't abdicate my values for the quote species. Yes. And Jay, that's exactly the sort of thing that I was arguing with this friend, you know, that as human beings, with free will and individual lives to live, our standard of value is not the survival of the species. And I've encountered this, you know, kind of survival of the species standard, not only in the discussion uh, with this friend about the issue of homosexuality, but also um, when we were listening, remember I was talking about the discussion between Jordan Peterson and, and Sam Harris, right? So Jordan Peterson's on this idea of, something is true if it contributes to the long-term survival of the human species. So talk about, you know, really taking that long-term survival of the human species and having it permeate not only ethics, but also epistemology. Um, that's what Peterson does there. So as, as human beings, though, as, as objectivists, yeah, biology is relevant. And yeah, our biology is, you know, something that is tailored for the long-term survival species. I mean, our biology, our physical bodies are, you know, made for reproducing, but that doesn't mean that we cannot make choices to decide not to reproduce or, you know, to do two other things. So we'll, we'll talk about that. But let's 
go in. Um, Ken in the chat room says that drives me crazy, crazy about Peterson. Yeah. I mean, the other thing what I was listening to uh, just a bit, an introduction of a discussion that he did with Stefan Molyneux and he um, was just, you know, talking about his idea that because there is no way in his mind on any sort of a scientific basis to bridge the is ought gap, then therefore we need religion and this was about 12 minutes into an hour and a half discussion. And I actually was not, I didn't have any more time to listen at that point either, but I also lost motivation to, to go back to it. So um, Redmond MTB is saying the Paul McKeever article was excellent. Thanks for posting it. Yeah. I mean, he really went through in an exhaustive way to try to get at the foundation and I'm not super clear that Peterson embraces pragmatism to the extent of that. I think he just is really motivated by the bridging of the is-ought gap. And he's bridging it in this way that's based in at least long-term human survival, but it's the survival of the species that he pegs it on. You know, and again, and I don't think that's a valid, you know, a valid standard for, for human ethics. Um, Jay says, I like hearing him talk even when I disagree with him. I understand where the breakdown is and he can separate the valuable info. Yeah, there was um, one short video that he did about the inability of the left and the right to talk to each other. And, of course, he has suffered a lot of slings and arrows from the left because he has stood up against the, you know, kind of hate speech codes and the draconian rules you know, about his use of language and pronouns and stuff in, in Canada. And so the left has been going after him. And so he's been very sensitive to the fact that there's people on the left who call themselves tolerant and yet they really are not, you know, they're, they're condemnatory. And this is a point you can make about the right and the left. Um, you know, there's, there's people who will uphold mercy and agreeableness, as Peterson puts it, over uh, like justice and um, how do you put it? Like, you know, like structure, some sort of a structured society with rules about how you succeed and all this kind of stuff. A lot of people on the left to just, you know, shrug that off. Um, and the point is, is that there are people on both sides of the debate who just actually can't hear the other side and, and how sad it is. That was a, a good talk as far as it went. Like I said, there's maybe, maybe there's a conflation of a temperament with a, a value or virtue going in there with Peterson. I wasn't so clear that he had committed that problem. This, this, you know, as an isolated talk, I really liked it. I like his value orientation a lot of times. And of course I'm very sympathetic with him standing up against those, you know, the legislation of pronouns in Canada but as to the foundations of his philosophy and his upholding of religion and the value of religion the way he does, I would disagree with that. Um, what else? Peterson does, but like everything he does in a strange way. I've listened to his entire Maps of Meaning course, says Redmond MTB. Interesting, but a very strange value system. I haven't gotten, like I said, too deep into it, but... You know the idea that the that religion is the automatic solution to the the bridging the is odd gap. Of course, as objectivists, we would reject it because we re we reject uh, religious faith. So let's go over to the program notes. 
at the blog at don'tletitgo.com. And what we've got first up is a brief editorial by the New York Times editorial board. Thanks to Robert Mayhew for posting this. Title is Australia's Grim Toll in the Church's Sex Abuse Scandal. And what you've got is you've got the editorial board summing up what the results were after six years of inquiry into what they call the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse in the Catholic Church in Australia. Um, Australian government investigators found that from 1980 to 2015, there were 4,444 victims of sexual abuse and at least 1,880 suspected to be abusers, most of them priests and religious brothers. The worst thing the New York Times is pointing out here, and this is their editorial board speaking, the culpability of bishops who did nothing about the crimes. The abused children, they write, were either ignored or punished, while priests who raped the children were protected by supervisors. They say the findings show harrowing patterns of abuse. 40% of religious brothers from the Order of St. John of God were accused of sexually assaulting their wards in residences where some of the most vulnerable youngsters were housed. Of all the chilling statistics, one stands out. Listen to this. 33 years is the average time it took for victims to overcome decades of personal despair and to go to authorities with complaints. 33 years. It says many might never have filed complaints, but for the emergence of the other victims, as the scandal grew churchwide in the wake of news media investigations. This is just horrific, horrific stuff. Um, Now, what they say is that the Australian inquiry underlies the question of whether the Vatican will ever discipline the offending bishops. One of Pope Francis's confidence, the Cardinal George Pell of Australia, who is now the Vatican treasurer, testified last year before the government inquiry. He says, quote, I'm not here to defend the indefensible. He says he termed the abuses a catastrophe for the church, but denied that he knew of priests abusing children during the decades of work there. Pope Francis has called for zero tolerance in late December by bishops of the sexual abuse of children and spoke of, quote, the sin of covering up and denial. Earlier in 2015, Pope Francis had approved the creation of a special tribunal to investigate offending bishops who routinely shielded pedophile priests and paid hush money to victims. But Francis stirred skepticism when he dropped the tribunal plan last year and assigned the task to the Vatican bureaucracy. They say the devastating findings in Australia raise yet again the question, will the church faithful ever see diocesan leaders brought to account for protecting the abusers and not the children they victimized? It's looking a little bit uh, kind of grim in terms of actually bringing them to justice. You know, this is horrific. My grandmother was a lapsed Catholic. I was actually baptized Catholic, but never 
really forced to go to church in any way. And I'm glad I wasn't. It's a lot easier to, um, now I'm wondering what they're doing here. Oh, people are talking in the chat room about the isot dichotomy and stuff. Semantic um, expedience. Of, okay, sorry, they're not on, on my topic here. Uh, you know, this this scandal in the church is something that really needs to be pushed. And you would think that Pope Francis of anybody would really you know, be one because he's more liberal, et cetera, be one to bring these bishops to account, but it looks like he's backing off of that. And it's really, really sad. Redmond MTV in the chat room says, highly recommend the movie Spotlight. I assume that that's relevant to the topic here at hand. If you want to talk about this or any of the other topics I've got on the program notes, the place to do so is 760 888 But yeah, so it's good that the New York Times followed up on this. And um, what are they doing here? They're testing out. Yeah, the ending was the haunting list of all the church abuses by the country. Oh, in the in the movie. Yeah, I'm I'm sure that that would be. But yeah, I'm definitely glad I was not brought up with the Catholic Church. That would be rather, rather disturbing. Um, Okay, let me get back over to the program notes at don'tletitgo.com. And, oh, so yeah, so let me go ahead, because I, you know, I said, okay, sex, I want to talk a little bit. Let's talk about this issue of sexuality and whether homosexuality is something that should be condemned on the objectivist view. Why? Because there is a, you know, physical basis for heterosexual behavior that has to do with reproduction, the survival of the human species. We are human beings after all. And the thing I was trying to bring home to my friend, but it was hard uh, because it was one of these, um, you know, messaging things, you know, where you're messaging and you you can only type so much. I think, you know, conversations in, in person are much better for something like this. But, you know, the the idea that we as human beings should be completely constrained by our physicality in making decisions about what is going to contribute to our rational happiness. That's, that's just wrong. And so the way I look at it, particularly with regard to homosexuality is this, right? And there's a lot of other issues having to do with sexuality that are exactly in this category, right? Um, There are a lot of reasons why somebody will have a particular type of taste sexually, right? And, you know, homosexuality is just one of the things along these dimensions. You know, oddly enough, this is one thing in which I am receptive to something that Lindsay Perigo from Solo wrote a while ago, and an essay he had showed me a while ago. And he was on the idea, he says, look, um, and, you know, he put it sort of in a a vulgar way, um, but, you know, he'd, he'd say, you know, a man can't control what turns him on, right? Um, he either responds physically in the way that everybody's thinking about right now, or or he doesn't, right? And so this idea that you have in your mind, like, oh, you should respond a certain way to either, you know, a certain sex or a certain type of person, you know, you're an objectivist. And so therefore, if there's a John Galt, you know, and you don't respond to him, or there's a Dagny Taggart, and you don't respond to her, then somehow you're a deficient human being or whatever. Um there are things in our psychology 
and you could say maybe homosexuality is one of these. I don't know enough about the basis of homosexuality, you know, to tell you whether it's something only in our psychology. There's also a physical basis. There's been all sorts of research about it. But what we seem to know is that this idea that you're going to, quote, cure homosexuality by putting somebody through therapy and stuff, this doesn't work. It just makes people miserable. And so my view with regard to homosexuality, and this is just based on all the information that's been, you know, that I've seen in my life. It's not that I've made a special study of this or anything, but any of the information I've seen, and I've talked to friends who are homosexual, et cetera, this is nothing that you're going to, quote, go change with therapy and everything else. And so as long as you are in a relationship with other consenting adults and what preferably one adult, I actually happen to think monogamy is the way to be happy. But, you know, again, that could be the thing that I personally prefer. There are people who are fans of Ayn Rand who are into polyamory and stuff. It's not, doesn't float my boat. So, you know, what are you going to do if, if you're engaging in a relationship with consenting adults and everybody is, you know, not sacrificing and doing things that they believe in their best rational belief or conducive to their long-term happiness, right? Then that's what you should do. Um, you know, we have productiveness as the central purpose of the good life, but around that there are all sorts of options that you can partake in and, homosexuality is an option. Um, it's a much, you know, living a homosexual lifestyle is way better than trying to bang your head against a brick wall in therapy that won't work to quote, change something about you. We are not constrained entirely by our physical natures. You know, another way in which we're not constrained, of course, we, you know, those of us who are heterosexual and you're engaging in heterosexual sex, you use birth control, right? You're not chained down by this idea that sex is for procreation, but for the survival of the species, I mean, you know, it should be from the Monty Python, every sperm is sacred, you know, that song, you're not supposed to waste any of them and they're all supposed to turn into kids. And it, if you haven't seen that clip, go watch it. It's really fun. Uh, we deviate and depart from our physical natures all the time. We make you know, modifications and stuff in order to enhance our happiness. And, you know, maybe someday I could imagine where you'd say, okay, uh, homosexuality could be addressed through therapy or cured or anything else. I could still see that there'd be other reasons that a person even wouldn't want to do that. And I would think, okay, that's a valid choice for that person's long-term happiness. But as it stands right now, the idea of telling somebody, okay, you're doing something abnormal and morally you are, you should be required to, you know, quote, cure it and everything else. No way. Um, you know, as far as I know, it's something that is established very early. You would just condemn yourself to decades of torture and people can choose to be in wonderful, long-term, monogamous, supportive relationships of the kind that I was encouraging my friends to celebrate yesterday, even if uh, they're homosexual. And, I, you know, again, as, as objectivists, right, we would say that our physical natures are, of course, relevant to what is going to be conducive to our long-term happiness. And there's some things about our physical nature that you cannot depart from, but there are other things that we certainly can. 
very small example, of course, is this little nose ring that I stuck in my ear. It's just a fun little decorative thing that's enhancing my life. Uh, people say, oh, you know, it's wild or whatever. People used to think earrings were wild. Nobody used to pierce their ears, and we started doing that, and now that's normalized. I think a number of piercings have become more normalized since the 90s when I first got into this stuff. So that's my little diversion. That Yeah, it does, does that justify my inclusion of sex in the in the title um, <laughs> Ken in the chat room he's putting some of the lyrics from the Monty Python if one sperm is wasted God gets quite irate exactly um, Milo says that he wants to try to pray the gay away wonder if he means it I hope he doesn't mean it because uh, you know, again, I'm only going based on the evidence that I have seen in my lifetime. What I've seen is any attempt to, quote, either pray or treat or whatever the gay away is never going to work. And what you should try instead to do is create for yourself a long-term healthy monogamous relationship with a partner who also has that goal. Caldwell in the chat room Nose rings are na- are dangerous counterculture, like mismatched socks. <laughs> mismatched socks are sometimes in style, okay? You know, they are options. could be really fun. Um, Rob here, he says, uh, Rob says he's gay, but he's biased about this. Let's see. Oh, he says, my take is that sex is much more important as a way of celebrating life because humans live by their minds, not to say that reproduction isn't important or that the body doesn't count. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, the the body, the nature of the body, which happens to be designed, if you want to you know, put it as designed, you know, evolution has made it so that it facilitates reproduction. But we depart from that all the time for the sake of sex as a celebration of of life so you know the idea that somehow our departures as homosexuals and who don't reproduce all the time that's fine but a homosexual's departure from our physical nature is somehow bad no as long as you don't have minors involved you know and, and again we could even talk about the monogamy versus polyamory thing but for my choice no and everybody gets to make that choice for themselves Rob says that Milo is conflicted, right? So if he's conflicted, then we have this opening for him to be my gay boyfriend again. Okay, that's awesome. I'm joking. Um, Milo is a little odd, and I, yeah, I would not want to go too near. Um, And then Rob in the chat room, he says, I'm not gay, so I'm biased too. He says, my bias is everyone should enjoy physical romance as much as I do. Awesome. That's a good wish for everybody. Robert says, can we please not follow a sperm ballad with a question of what belongs in your ears or nose? Um, You can abstract away from what I was talking about, Robert, and and be fine. Let me go over to the switchboard. No, okay, I've got people who have called in, but if you're actually wanting to leave a comment or make a question or ask a question, then go ahead and hit the one button and I'll know that you actually want to do that as well. Let me go back over to the program notes. 
and see what we got next. Oh, so we get to talk about Michael Flynn. And the essence of the Michael Flynn story, and the Michael Flynn story is still exploding under development. The New York Times is really avidly investigating the whole issue of people from the Trump campaign communicating with Russia and Russian intelligence, et cetera, during the time of the campaign before Donald Trump ever took office and communicating in an inappropriate way. Flynn has now resigned, as you know, and the issue, the problem, again, is, you know, the idea that Flynn misled senior officials about a phone call that he had with a Russian ambassador. Um, Justice told the White House that contrary to Flynn's claims, Mr. Flynn had discussed American sanctions against Russia with the ambassador. Um, The discrepancy between what Mr. Flynn had said publicly, that he didn't say these things, and what the Russians and American intelligence officials knew made Mr. Flynn vulnerable to Russian blackmail. However, the White House evidently didn't feel the need to act on that danger as long as it was concealed from the public. You know, this is quite disturbing, the idea that you have somebody who is a foreign policy advisor, national security advisor, who is subject to blackmail because he has lied about the types of conversations that he's had with Russia. This has opened the door for the New York Times to do all sorts of investigation and push the whole idea that the Trump campaign had improper communications and relations with Russia, Russian intelligence, et cetera, um, and that perhaps they were getting some assistance from Russia in winning the election as well. All of these things have been brought into question. If you go to the blog at don'tletitgo.com, I have a link to a New York Times op-ed and other editorial from them right now where they are talking about all the missing pieces. They're saying that the resignation of Flynn is not the end of the story. Uh, They say the damning revelations keep coming. They say this whole fiasco underscores underscores the dysfunction and dishonesty of the White House and how ill-prepared it is to protect the nation. And they go, they go around and they, you know, they go through and they talk about the, you know, different instances of dishonesty that you should be worried about. And they give you a timeline with dates and everything else. And when I read through this, the impression that I got was, you know, well, while my position has been that Hillary Clinton's campaign and, and her you know, just her whole State Department and everything else, that there was so much corruption going on that we're better off with Trump. Now you're seeing that there may be some of that very same corruption with Trump. And in fact, we might not be any better off at all with Trump. Although, you know, I'm still sympathetic. I have I have one friend on Facebook, for example, who is doing battle with public schools right now because there's a public school district in North Carolina that has really draconian rules about the children being able to use the restroom 
between breaks and stuff. And, you know, if, if there's time later, I could go into this a little bit, but it's really awful the way that they're treating these kids and not giving them restroom breaks and making them carry 40 pounds worth of, worth of books on their back and get from class to class in four minutes, including a restroom break. It's ridiculous, especially for women. Uh, if women, you know, have their periods and stuff, it's, it's a mess, right? Um, and so this woman, you know, the reason she is hopeful about a Trump administration is because she might have some school choice. She might get a voucher that she can use to escape the public school system and these horrible, inhumane, draconian rules that they're imposing on children. And, you know, the other thing that she hopes to get from a Trump administration is a, a serious addressing of the risk of terror, uh, you know, Islamic terror. I'm still sympathetic with people who think that Trump might be better for some of these things that really impact our lives than Hillary Clinton was. But, you know, when you see this Flynn scandal and you see some of the inconsistencies and the cover-up that's been going on, the dishonesty, it makes you think that maybe you're not that much better off with a Trump administration and it, and it's really disheartening. Um, now, what do we know? We say, as far as we know, Flynn lied to the VP, which is not a crime, and got fired. The way the media talks about it, you think it was worse than any scandal Obama had. Uh, apparently, Flynn was also interviewed by the FBI, and if he lied to the FBI, which is something they're still, I guess, trying to establish, that would have been criminal as people say, I'm past my limit on free New York Times stories. I'm sorry about that. Um, yeah. I, there's probably going to be other places that you can get, like the Washington Post, for example, although they also have the paywall at a certain point. You know, what I do, thanks to people who donate to the show, I really appreciate you helping to keep me up to date on news. I've got just a digital basic subscription to New York Times and also Wall Street Journal. I re-upped on that recently. So I do appreciate you guys making that possible, you know, for me to do. Rob says, I expected to be disheartened by both Trump and Hillary. I just, I had this sense that Trump might be a little bit better and it may still be the case. You know, one thing we're going to talk about a little bit later is the press conference between Trump and Netanyahu. And there were some things that about that that were heartening. There were some things about that that were concerning and, and we'll, we'll discuss. As I said here, I try to be as objective as possible about the, the pros and cons of Trump. But overall, there are a lot of disturbing things. I do have a call on the switchboard. I'm going to go ahead and grab it. Hello, you're on the air. Who's this? Hey, Amy, it's Matt. Matt, how are you? Good. Hey, uh, you caught me a little bit uh, late because I was calling in to talk about the whole homosexuality thing. Sure, that's fine. No, I'm I'm totally fine going back to that because it it is an issue that some people, I think, are confused about it. And, you know, kind of, and I, I don't know that I fully finished all of my thoughts on it. I'm going to blame tiredness about that as well. But, you know, the idea would be if you're solely focused on the physical nature of a human being, that that would be what in objectivism we would call an intrinsicist attitude, that you're, you know, looking solely at the physical nature and not the nature of human consciousness and the ability to make decisions, rational decisions that, don't necessarily conform to every aspect of our physical beings, right? Well, I, I don't even think you need to go that far. Okay. For instance, uh, 
bear with me here for a minute. Sure. If you stop and think about it, um, if homosexuality were strictly genetic, it would have died out millennia ago. However, mm-hmm. also, yeah. if well, it were simply something that was chosen, I think it would have died out millennia ago too, with the, uh, you know, being uh, killed and executed uh, along the way. I don't, you know, you can't really say that people would choose that sort of thing. Um, so you have to stop and think and uh, say, how can it happen? And we know that there's a thing that we're just learning about uh, called epigenetics. In other words, what happens in the womb. In fact, mm-hmm. that's one of the theories that uh, boys do better at math than girls on average because having exposure to, to testosterone in the womb makes you better at math. And so it, it shouldn't surprise anybody if that's the case that boys do better at math. So it's one explanation. But if you stop and think about if uh, if it really is epigenetic and there's some kind of stressor or something that happens when your mother is pregnant that causes you to lean this way, we do actually have experimental evidence of that in rats. Uh, it was back in, I think, the 60s or 50s that this guy was uh, experimenting with rats and uh, crowding them together worse and worse because people were worried about the overpopulation bomb back then. And he found that a lot of these rats, the tighter they'd force them in, would become homosexual. Hmm. So, so, so your point rate, then, it, your your point then is is that there is a physical basis for this, and so that the you know people who are homosexual aren't necessarily quote choosing to depart in any way from absolutely. their physical natures. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, there, there are a number of theories, you know, and I don't necessarily want to get, you know, bogged down in the particular ones other than, you know, to just say that my sense of everything is that you have probably at least some sort of a physical predisposition, but there's maybe some very early, you know, choices that people make that could sort of push them in one direction versus the other, but they're, they're so early and they wouldn't be conscious and everything else. It would be as if, you know, it's, it's an intractable uh, part of your character and that's just what it is. And, and I, and I think that there are other things as well. There's other early choices and things that people make because of the environments that they're in that have to do with, you know, that, that, excuse me, that affect what type of person that they're sexually attracted to as well. And some of these things, you know, you do need to try to overcome, like if you're going to choose the people that are wrong for you all the time or something, you know, they're actually going to be harmful to your life and your interests. Right. But if there are things that are optional, like, Oh, I just happen to like people with black hair or whatever it is. Right. Um, Then that doesn't mean anything. Right. That's just, you know, that that's fine. That's, you know, an optional thing that you can go ahead and, uh, you know, pursue uh, in in the list of options, you know, only black people will, you know, black, black haired people will turn me on or something, whatever that is, that that's just nothing. Um, so, you know, fighting against things that are optional, like that. And, and you know, like I said, I think homosexuality is an issue where at the very best, suppose you quote could change it it would take decades of of misery and and time investment and stuff and that whole time you're not supposed to have a fulfilling sexual relationship that contributes to your happiness that's just 
garbage, you know. Well, like I said, I I I see it as a natural thing. It's uh, yeah. it happens for uh, whatever stressors you get in the womb, and uh, for that reason, there's a. Uh, but I, you know, but this is the thing, right? It's it's it's, of, it's natural. It's natural, not just if it's got a physical component. It can be natural if it's also got this psychological component, right? Because we are creatures of, of mind and body and psychology and everything else. And if it's something that's deeply entrenched in our psychology from early on, that's just as real as a physical basis. I don't think it has to have just a physical basis for us to say it is a moral option for somebody to pursue that, you know, a particular person who is homosexual should live a homosexual lifestyle if that person wants to be happy. And that if you, you know, you are a homosexual and you choose not to, you try to, you know, go get cured like Mike Pence wants you to, you're just consigning yourself to decades of misery. It would just, it would be horrible. And that's right. true if it's that's psychological. True. I think it's true if, if it's psychological as well. At any rate, uh, like I said, I just wanted to throw that out there because I see, um, I see it as a perfectly natural thing and does it, it's not anything anybody can do anything about. Now, there's certain things. You know, I used to joke about uh, being more attracted to blondes than brunettes. And it, I, I mean it as a joke, but I certainly can see brunettes as just as attractive. And that's where even if I did have that propensity, my reason would overcome it. But, right. Um, yeah. You know, oh, you're yeah. not even getting there with a sexual attraction or sexual preference. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, and the way you'd look at it is within a certain range, you, you know, wouldn't be so, you know, wedded to hair color preferences or other things as well. Um, you know, but there, there is a certain element that if, you know, you could think a person is the greatest person in the world. And if that person just doesn't turn you on, that person doesn't turn you on and there's nothing you can do about it. And then therefore that person would not be a good romantic partner. Um, you know, you can explore, you know, what is the reason that this person doesn't turn me on and see whether it's something that is easily addressable. And, and for some people, there are certain, you know, things that it's easy to overcome and overlook that in favor of these other things that are much higher values. Uh, you know, the idea that any one person is going to embody all of the things that perfectly, you know, match for you romantically is is pretty tough to, you know, imagine. But you know, you get enough within a certain range. Um, so, so you you had that idea, like you thought you blondes were better, and then you got over it and thought brunettes were maybe okay as well. Uh, no, it's just that uh, <laughs> I, I typically would date blondes. I guess I don't. It was just a joke. A you know, joke. recently I, I was I, I was looking at a Gwen a Gwen Stefani video, and you know, she dyes her hair really blonde, and. It you know it is it's 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 quite attractive. I've done the blonde thing off and on throughout my life, and I posted a picture once where it was still sort of like blonde highlighted, and people just go wow, you know, and you get tempted. It's like look, yeah, blondes it's, they seem to have more fun, so you know, go go and do that again, right? Maybe there's some there's maybe there's some reason for this. I don't know if there's something in Darwinian evolution. There's a high survival value to the blonde. I don't know. <laughs> At anything, any rate, anything else? Uh, anything else, Matt? Yeah, we're ha- well, we're having the fun the fun awkward conversation here, right? Well, um, you know, you do mention Flynn, and he is the guy who came up with the uh, what do they call it? The uh, jihadi math, or uh, 
Have you ever heard that one? He he was the guy who came up with the the math that said that uh, one dead one dead terrorist plus or I'm sorry ten ten dead terrorist with one dead civilian equals ten new terrorists. And so he had a lot to do with uh, trying to fight against collateral damage for that reason. Have you ever heard of that? I just was curious. Uh, I mean, I've, I've heard of things like that, but I didn't know that Flynn himself was an originator of, you know, any sort of specific math about it. But I've heard math about it before. And, you know, to some extent, yeah, you could say that civilian casualties could incite you know, further people to get involved in the jihad movement. But what you need to do is fight a proper war and fight it quickly. So all of this, you know, you've basically destroyed ISIS before you have, you know, the inspiration of other people to join ISIS taking effect. And we just, we let this drag out for so long that you have to start doing math like that. You know, there is this, this time frame, and, you know, we're allowing people to to get inspired to fly over and join ISIS and everything else. It's really a sad thing. What are you optimistic at all about Donald Trump actually taking care of this problem? Of course not. Okay. <laughs> I don't think I, I don't think he has any principles in the matter whatsoever. Um it's I don't uh, I don't really see anybody um in government or elsewhere with many principles. well, I shouldn't say elsewhere. Um implying that there are people that do have good ideas. But uh, I I don't see any of them pursuing a course that's going to get us very far. Um, And, of course, I I retired from the military not too long ago, and there were – yeah, I'll bring up another one here. Why not? Uh, You remember the whole Matt Dooley thing at Joint Forces Staff College. Right. Yes. And I was – yeah, I was there at that time. And okay. so I got to see, <laughs> I, I got to see it all happen firsthand. So, yep. No, uh, I mean, I have, I have experienced a taste of that myself because of my years teaching at the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, where I saw one of the professors tell cadets basically that if you were in favor of the carpet bombing in Germany that we did in World War II, if you thought that was a good thing, that you didn't belong in the air force. Um, and, and also, and also, uh, you know, apply that same, uh, you know, sort of invocation to the, you know, dropping the bomb on Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki as well. Those, which helped us win the war and save so many American lives. And yet, you know, you've got these professors at the air force Academy saying, now that person's no longer at the air force Academy and, um, you know, I don't know of what the people at the Air Force Academy now are telling cadets and things like this, but to me, it's it's really disturbing if you are shutting down debate about these very important issues, like you know, just war theory topics and stuff. I think that we should have an open, you know, and full exchange of ideas there. And so the Dooley case was also disturbing. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, I I taught uh, I taught ethics there at the Joint Forces Staff College. And so one of the things that was always kind of fun to me is I bring up something that's not well-known in history, such as the Trail of Tears. Mm -hmm. And I I asked, I would uh, actually go around the classroom and ask this one directly, and that's, okay, you're 
you're the CSA, and President Andrew Jackson just gave you an order to remove the key and the other tribes from their land, what do you do? Right. <laughs> and 50% of the people just came out and said, I'd follow the order. And right. the other half lied and said they wouldn't. So, and I, I can just about guarantee you that ninety percent of the ones that said that they wouldn't, if, when it came down to the pinch, would would do it without much hesitation. Um, and so, you know, there's real uh, certainly at this level, you need a little bit more thought. But uh, most of the people there would uh, follow in lockstep right along with the order. Yeah, lockstep was exactly the word. Lockstep was exactly the word that was floating around in my mind as I was listening to you. As well. Thank you. Um, th- thanks for calling, Matt. I've got another call on the switchboard, sure. so I do have to go take it. I, I appreciate, especially you know, calling and volunteering to talk about that the controversial topic of homosexuality well, as well. I appreciate it. Yeah. Congrats on the retirement as, as well. So I'm going to go ahead and grab this other call. See who we got here. Hi, you're on the air. Who's this? Hi, Amy. This is Waldo. Hi, Waldo. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for taking my call. Uh-huh. Um, so I'm calling about two things, about both Flynn and uh, the homosexuality conversation that you were having. Um, sure. And mostly to talk about um, my experience because I am gay. And after, I mean, I never had a problem with how I identified myself as gay, but I will say that after reading Ayn Rand, um, her idea solidified in me that it was okay for me to follow what I loved and, like, what I'm attracted to and what brings me happiness. So I think objectivism is perfectly compatible with people who are gay and are just, they just want. Hello? Hmm. He got cut off, and I don't know. I, I promise I did not cut him off. You know that my view is compatible with his, so it's not like I would do that. Um, Waldo, are you there? Nope, we got dropped. Okay. Well, we will see if he goes ahead and calls back. I'll go ahead and, and take the call again. Um, yeah, I think this is him calling back again. Let me see. Yeah, I've got him. Okay, let's get him back. Hi, I, I don't know how you got cut off, but through. you did, yeah. Yeah, um, maybe it was my fault. Sorry about that. No worries. Um, where did I leave off? So you were saying that when you read Rand, you saw it, uh, you know, her writings as reaffirming your choice to, you know, live a life that would make you happy. Right, that there, that there was no, yeah, so long as you pursue your happiness with another individual who, also shares your values. Like it doesn't matter whether you were gay or straight because you're both reasoning individuals. And um, so, so that really like was great for me. And I feel like a lot of gay people should maybe read objectivism and maybe that would help them. Like, I feel like a lot of gay people just um, discard objectivism immediately and they don't like try to read it or read anything about it, and I think that it would be really helpful for them to just see how it's okay for them to be gay um, because it's 
it's their right to pursue their own happiness, and it's and so long as you understand it, it's 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 not a problem. But I feel like a lot of people don't do that, and I feel like a lot of conservative type people who are religious just don't want other people to have happiness and. <laughs> And like, if we can only have sex to have kids, then no one else can have sex for pleasure. <laughs> right, right, and 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 you know, there is people who are really fundamentalists in their religion, you know, particularly Christian religion. You've heard this that sex is only for procreation, and the idea of enjoying sex for its own sake as a celebration of life is, you know, anti-Christian. And you know, in in particular, if it's homosexual sex that you're engaging in, then you are saying, look, there's absolutely no chance of any procreation going on during homosexual sex. We are doing this purely for the enjoyment, the enhancement of a relationship, celebration of life. And it's just unabashed, right? Um, Right. There's no benefit to society. There's no benefit to religion. The only benefit from that act is to me and my partner, and That's our right. own satisfaction and our own happiness. And that offends people because they're like, how dare you be so greed, full of greed and individualistic <laughs> that you just want to have sex to be happy. Right. <laughs> so, right. Um, so, yeah, so I think that um, objectivism and Ayn Rand really um, helped solidify that in me and all, so many other things in my life and how I see the world. So, um, so that was my comment on that. And then the second comment I had on Flynn was that it's everyone was complaining about Hillary and her ties to Saudi Arabia and the funding for um, the Clinton organization and how she could be affected uh, through um, through the Clinton Foundation by other countries. And now we're seeing with Trump that Flynn was involved with Russian diplomats and that also Rex Tillerson is uh, the Secretary of State has also some Russian ties, mm-hmm. and if it's just like now we're seeing the same problem with this other candidate, and I hope that people who were criticizing Clinton before will also criticize Trump for the same thing, basically. Yeah, and that's the sort of thing that the New York Times is working to call people out on, which is this idea that. Um, you know, we investigate Hillary for all the irregularities that she was guilty of, and she was, but somehow now, like Rand Paul said, oh, there's nothing to investigate here, and maybe there is. Uh, You know, to me, what there is, it's a little bit too soon to tell, but the New York Times does lay out in that piece a little timeline of, you know, on this date they said X, and then later they said this other thing that contradicts it, and there are specifics given. So, you know, if they're actually misreporting facts and events in the real world, then we really need to get on the New York Times, right? I'm I'm all for criticizing a news outlet if they're lying to us, but they don't seem to be. There seem to be, you know, and why does, you know, we used to say, why did all those people in the DNC resign if the WikiLeaks weren't true? Um, why did Flynn resign if all of these allegations aren't true? Um, you know, that he wasn't guilty of something that made him at risk of being blackmailed, right? We don't want somebody who is a national security advisor being at risk of blackmail. Uh, Definitely. I mean, there has to be some truth to this uh, 
accusation because there's been so many other uh, problematic nominees in the Trump cabinet or that, you know, loud complaints have been uh, created by the media and by people about all these other cabinet members, but none of them have, like, you know, like, once appointed then resigned or anything like he did. So that because there was, like, really, there was nothing. There was just, like, baseless accusations. But this is an actual, so this one has to have some basis if he actually did resign. Yeah, and that and that's what I would I would infer as well. And again, like I said, there are some specifics there. So, anything else, Waldo? Before I go on, because I've got a a bit more. I mean, I don't know if you want to stay on for the next kind of wrinkle in this story, because the next wrinkle of the story is, okay, yeah, there's something here. Um, you know, we're not going to defend Flynn. What he seems to have done is wrong, but perhaps the way that the whistleblowing was done, right, where you have anonymous people within our intelligence community who have gone to the press and released this information. I think it was the Washington Post that released the story that this is disturbing. Do you have any thoughts on that issue? I mean, isn't what we want from government to be, for it to be transparent? I mean, or for, for it to be at least honest and um you know, this this wasn't an. I mean, this and this was uh, Edward Snowden did by revealing the existence of the NSA. Um, well, and and uh, that's the that's the thing that I sort of bring up as implied in my program notes is you know what's so so with Flynn, what you had is you had people within the intelligence community anonymously going to the media and leaking. And that is how Michael Flynn has been taken down. He was forced to resign. And there's a story from the week that Sonny Lohman sent me, you know, and they say right there in the headline that it's deeply worrying that this is the way that this came about. Um, And what they're saying is that this, the whole thing that we've seen here with this, you know, whistleblower effect, they, they said this is evidence of the precipitous and ongoing collapse of America's democratic institutions, not a sign of the resiliency. The ouster, they say, was a soft coup or political assassination engineered by anonymous intelligence community bureaucrats. The results might be salutary. We don't think that Flynn did good stuff, right? They say, but this is not the way that a liberal democracy is supposed to function. So we have these unelected intelligence analysts who took it upon themselves to go straight to the media and the question is, is this something we want in general? And if it's not something we want, are we able to distinguish what Snowden did in a way that's meaningful? That's my big um, question. I mean, well, what would be the proper way then for, for this to resolve itself? If it's not... So, I mean, I would assume that there are places that these intelligence analysts could go before they go straight to the media, you know, was it right for them? And and we've got a lot of the media, as far as I know right now, they're all encouraging whistleblowers to come and leak stuff all the time. And as I understand it, Snowden didn't make this decision. Oh, he's going straight to the media. He pursued a long course of trying to work within the system and going to supervisors and everything else and reporting you know, and, and, you know, encouraging and saying, you know, shouldn't we do something about this? Aren't there constitutional rights violations going on here in the NSA and the prison program and, you know, Verizon and all that stuff. 
And he concluded, you know, for the reasons that, you know, again, I always talk about this, John Bolton told me in the debate, all three branches of government had signed off on those NSA programs, said they were fine. People were unable to challenge the NSA programs in court due to lack of standing because they didn't have evidence of this. Nobody within the intelligence community structure that Snowden went to seemed to be receptive to getting this, you know, pursued up the chain of command, so to speak. Then he concluded, okay, my only option is, you know, put my life at risk. And his life is at risk at the moment, actually. Um, You know, put my life at risk and everything else in order to get this information out to the public, because only if I make it public in the right way, can these programs be challenged in a court of law the way that they have been? Or maybe there's some, you know, that right now there's reforming our legislation around privacy a little bit as well. I don't, I don't like that stuff as much as the litigation, but it's there. Um, I don't know that well, in, this I, Flynn, in this Flynn episode that they had to go straight to the media as a matter of first resort. I mean, was it an emergency or were they just saying, look, you know, we are upset about the fact that Trump won. There's a lot of people who are upset about the fact that Trump won. And there is some corruption here within the Trump campaign slash administration. Let's go ahead and expose it right away without going through the proper channels. From what I read, they actually did mention it to President Trump, that uh, the FBI let him know of these anomalies and that he was, and that Flynn was communicating with Russian diplomats or people in Russia, um, and that he, like, there was no response. So to me, well, I and then, and then, and then the question is, then the question is, how long do you wait for a response before you decide, okay, we've got to go to the media right now? What we do know, you know, and again, this is something that I'm, you know, mulling about in my mind. But my standard would be, have you pursued the viability of all the proper options or have you concluded that the only way to do what is right in this particular case is to go outside the proper channels and bring it to the media. And I get the sense, at least because of the time frame involved here, that it wasn't essential to go to the media as quickly as they did. But I'm open to argument that, you know, there, there may be, you know, there may have been an urgency there. Um, right. I, I, I really don't know, like, time-wise, if it was, if, did it need to happen this quick? Maybe, maybe it was so fast because they were, like, the, whoever was the, in the FBI was like, oh, well, I'm gonna, uh, like, I don't like Trump anyway, so why should I, like, hold off any longer on this? Um, but I feel like this is really hard to, to say because I mean so many things happen at like certain times or like what who was the the head of the FBI when he was revealing that um, Loretta met up with Clinton on an airplane or whatever and then like and then the whole situation that happened afterwards at the specific timing and then the Democrats accused them why are you doing this right now why are you opening up education right now when we're about to like have the vote and all this other stuff. So, like, the timing for everything is all... Is often political, right. Yeah. So, um, 
there's there's one other there's one other factor here though, Waldo. There's one other factor that differentiates what happens in this episode so far from what Edward Snowden did. Edward Snowden did not leak anonymously. He went out there on the record saying, Yes, I'm this guy and here's this evidence. Whereas here you have these intelligence community bureaucrats leaking anonymously to the newspapers, right? And what happens when this story comes out, even though it's been unverified, unsubstantiated, et cetera, as the week is writing here, they say this can inflict politically fatal damage almost instantaneously. And that's true, right? Because, you know, again, we have the fake news phenomenon Suppose this is not true because, you know, it's just anonymous leaks and the people don't have to be held accountable. Nonetheless, isn't the damage done to a certain extent? Now we say, okay, well, Flynn resigned, so maybe that shows you that it was true and everything else. Or, you know, did Trump just make Flynn resign because, as it is, he's on the defensive about a number of things that happened in the first first several weeks and he's trying to get his administration on track? Um, the, I mean, the NSA was, is this whole institution, system, that, so it need so I guess it was more important for Snowden to reveal himself to, like, impart the gravity of what was happening, uh, with America's privacy versus this position, uh, the, uh, the, the flame being placed in that position was maybe not as, I mean, that's that's really that's really my impression is that there are differences that make the difference. And and that, you know, when you're talking about whether what a whistleblower does is morally defensible, you would have to talk about whether that person exhausted all other options to do the right thing. Plus, how important is the thing, you know, that you're doing? So I, I differentiate against Snowden from Chelsea Manning. We've talked about this before, uh, but I also would differentiate what Snowden has done from, from this. So that's, that's my little bit on that. Should I let you go? Waldo? I didn't mean to put you on the spot about that stuff. And I've got a couple other things I'm just going to clean up before the show. Oh, no, I'm happy to um, keep talking with you however, however long you want, but if you just want to take it off, uh, that's all right with me. <laughs> okay. I no, I, I really appreciate you being a, a sport and hanging on with me here, especially like I said, I'm a little sleep deprived today. So um, I hope you had a wonderful Valentine's Day, a wonderful celebration with your significant other, assuming you, I don't, you know, I don't know your relationship status or anything else, but everybody who's <laughs> out there, everybody who's out there in a, a wonderful relationship, I hope to be you someday and, and celebrate right along with you. So I hope you have a great week. I know I have one friend, who has been, I think, celebrating Valentine's Day for all week, eight days. I can't remember how they celebrate it, but there's it, there's a lot of awesomeness going on out there. So I hope you are. Uh, we don't really do Valentine's Day, but that's more because we already have, like, our anniversary in January. So it's sort of like, I don't know, it's, it's rather be like have, we already have that romantic right. time so soon close to Valentine's and then you just see all the people buying the Valentine's Day card on and whenever <laughs> on the same day, like they're scrambling to get something. I'm like, wow, like it just like, kills my Valentine spirit because people are like, they can't even think that far ahead. They're just like, I'll just get a, a, a Valentine card and that'll be enough to satisfy a right. person in my life. 
So yeah. <laughs> so that like kind of makes me like less interested in it. But um, yeah. But I did have a good Valentine's Day regardless. <laughs> so beautiful. Beautiful. Okay, well, thanks thanks again, Waldo, for calling, and we will talk again soon. Let me go back over to the blog at don'tletitgo.com where I've got more of the program notes. I've got just um, some recent tweets embedded there from Edward Snowden, and what has happened recently is, you know, again, there's been these rumors that Russia is poised to offer Snowden to the United States as a gift of some kind. And I'm wondering if the risk of that happening is increased in light of what Snowden's been doing recently. He's apparently been incre- uh, excuse me, criticizing the Russian government, what, what he describes as their oppressive new Big Brother law. And he says now he's being subjected to threatening rumors, but nonetheless, he's not going to stop criticizing even the Russian government, the government that might turn him over to Trump. It's it's so it's so sad. He says uh, Snowden in his second tweet. I don't know if the rumors are true about you know the threatening rumors. He says, but I can tell you this: I am not afraid. These are things that must be said, no matter the consequence. He he's saying the right things. You know, some people might say, well, he's a big phony. Everything I see from him, it seems completely earnest. And I say kudos to him, and I hope he's going to be okay. What I was going to say with respect to the next thing, which is the press conference between Trump and Netanyahu, there was one element in the press conference that was disturbing to me. And it was Trump vehemently criticizing intelligence leaks in general. And he didn't say it, but it made me think of, you know, the anger that he's experiencing, that Trump is experiencing against the intelligence community for taking down Flynn that some of that might be expressed against Snowden. He's like, oh, I'll show everybody. I'm going to make an example of Edward Snowden. And as I was talking about with Waldo, I think there are good reasons to distinguish what these anonymous intelligence bureaucrats have done in the Flynn scenario versus Edward Snowden going out there, identifying himself as the person who's responsible for these very important leaks, leaks that were only put out there after he had exhausted the potential remedies, you know, within the system and and all of that. So um, I do worry. Now, other things about, you know, in general, I agree. I was uh, exchanging a little bit of uh, messaging with Sonny Lohman about this Trump Netanyahu thing. And it is encouraging to see a United States president, you know, affirm what a great country Israel is, affirm some of the values more or less explicitly that we share. He even talked about freedom and peace. And I think he said prosperity, but he said the word freedom at least, right? He not rights. He's just not in your rights. He's still not into your rights, but freedom. You know, he says uh, one thing that it made me think when I'm watching this, right? You, you watch Trump give his speech and then Netanyahu give his and Netanyahu actually brings in the words, you know, radical Islamic terrorism, which Trump, he said terrorist, but he didn't say radical Islamic terrorist. You know, he only used that in the campaign to get elected. So sorry, people. Um, what did you, you know, what, what are you thinking here? You're thinking, can we leader swap? Can we do like leader swapping with Israel? Can we have Netanyahu and they can have Trump for, I, I wouldn't mind that in the least. That would be awesome. Uh, the thing that overall makes me skeptical about, you know, being excited about this press conference is first of all, that they're talking about making a deal 
with the so-called Palestinians. Can you ever make a deal with the so-called Palestinians? If you choose to watch the video that I've shared there, I've got an ABC News video in the program notes at don'tletitgo.com. At 24 minutes into the video, Netanyahu talks about what his preconditions would be for peace. And, of course, one of them is that the so-called Palestinians acknowledge the right of the state of Israel to exist. Uh, The second thing is he said that there's a a certain amount of territory, uh, the West Bank, that they have to control because otherwise their country's security is, is at risk. They must still control this territory. And he's very, you know, clear and adamant about what these conditions are. Um, I'm skeptical as to whether a deal can ever happen. Trump says he's optimistic, but at the same time, during this press conference, he's saying to Netanyahu that he wants Netanyahu to hold off on the, you know, the settlements, right? There's, they're still building these settlements. And he's saying, you know, hold off temporarily. And Netanyahu did not agree to that there. So even, you know, what Trump's trying to get Netanyahu to agree to as a start of these so-called negotiations, I'm not sure that Netanyahu, you know, is going to or should agree to that. On the other hand, I mean, there was a lot of great things said about it's horrible that the United Nations is taking actions against Israel, what a great value Israel is how they're going to work together on various issues. It it sounded good, but whether anything is actually going to come of it insofar as they think they're going to quote deal with the Palestinians is another issue. Um, Now I'm going to talk to you a little bit about why I put love in the title. Again, I took tremendous artistic license with putting love in the title. And it's because at about 33 minutes, into this video that you see, the ABC News video of the press conference, 33 minutes in, Trump addresses the question of whether there's been racism or xenophobia, either with him, the administration, supporters, whatever. And he did not address it head on. He just said something like, you know, I assure you that throughout the future, there's going to, this is going to, there's going to be so much love so much love out there, you know, the love and it's the cure of everything. So this is why I use the word love. So watch from about 33 minutes on and you can hear Trump supposedly address the problems of, you know, racism against Jewish people in particular, xenophobia ever since Trump has been elected. That has been a problem that some people have, have perceived out there. So check that out. Um, let me go over to the chat room and see how people are doing over there. How are you doing? Let's see. Trade uh, Donald J. Trump for Netanyahu. Yeah, we we might get a wall, but uh, yeah, I'll take it in a heartbeat. That would be wonderful. Um, let's see here. Uh, <laughs> Quinn in the chat room has given me a marriage proposal. 20 years younger. I think 20 years younger is, is not sustainable. Um, I've seen couples survive with an eight-year age difference or so, and that seems to work. Of course, people who you know, know my past know that I was in a relationship with a rather large age difference. My husband was a lot older than, than I was, and eventually that turned out to be unsustainable for certain lifestyle choices and things like that. 
Un- unfortunately, because there was a lot of ways in which we had a really nice relationship. Um, okay. Over here at the program notes, let me get through a couple of these last ones. I wanted to say something good. Uh, under the Trump's watch, we have something that is good. We have Jim Mattis, who is the defense secretary, telling NATO allies that they should spend more on their own defense or else. New York Times article again, sorry, those people who can't get behind the paywall. It says Defense Secretary Jim Mattis echoing his boss in Washington warned on Wednesday that the amount of American support for NATO could depend on whether other countries meet their own spending commitments. Quote, Americans cannot care more for your children's future security than you do. End quote, Mr. Mattis said in his first speech to NATO allies since becoming Defense Secretary. Quote, I owe it to you to give you clarity on the political reality in the United States and to state the fair demand for my country's people in concrete terms. And he says, America will meet its responsibilities, but, says the Times, he made clear that American support had its limits. In the speech to defense minister, he repeated a call made by previous American secretaries of defense for European allies to spend more on the military. Um, The comments on Wednesday give teeth to President Trump's expressed skepticism about the alliance. So I would say that that's a good sign, saying that other countries should carry more of their own weight in their own defense. I think that is a wonderful development. Another article over in the program notes to take a peek at, there's been this whole thing about a dam in California that was at the brink of failure. As I understand it, we have avoided the disaster, but the idea that this dam was on the verge of failing and every whole bunch of people had to be evacuated and everything else is a failure of Jerry Brown's legacy. The, I, the headline is really, I think, what Rob Abiero shared this for. He And I agree, it's awesome. Jerry Brown's California legacy is a dam failure. And that's literally the Oroville Dam at 770 feet, America's tallest, is on the verge of failing, says the article from Breitbart. And Sacramento, which has been fiddling for decades while Rome burns, is running for cover. This isn't just any dam. It's the primary storage facility located on the Feather River for the State Water Project, the state-owned conveyance system that provides drinking water to more than two-thirds of California's population. If the dam were to fail, it it could inundate not only the city of Oroville, but numerous other communities downstream, including Yuba City, Marysville, and even West Sacramento. What is Jerry Brown doing? Same thing he's been doing for decades, obstructing progress. California has been so busy defying President Trump in order to protect illegal aliens from deportation that it forgot to do the things government is supposed to do, like maintain infrastructure. Now, I would disagree about whether it's government's job to maintain this infrastructure, but insofar as government is taking this on and preventing everybody else from doing it, and I swear, every time we have a ballot in California, there's a bond measure supposedly paying for water. And even though I vote against it, it always passes because they say the sky will fall if you don't vote to increase your taxes. And then everybody says, okay, I don't want the sky to fall. I'll increase my taxes. And then they do. And the question is, why aren't they spending money on that versus the so-called high speed rail boondoggle and benefits for illegal aliens is something else that of course, Breitbart is going to throw in and mention there. 
Uh, yes. His legacy is a damn failure, and we probably haven't seen the, the worst of it. A couple other things I've got in the program notes. I'll, I'm going to give this caller who just called in a, a couple minutes and then get to those. Hi, Hi, you're on the air. Who's this? Oh, is this Harold? Hi, how are you? Harold. Good. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Yeah, a couple of funny liners from the week's news, and then I'll make my serious point. Someone was talking about the wall with Mexico. It should be built on Mexico's southern border. That's where the real problem is. You know, Mm. keep Mexico safe from the Guatemalans and the Hondurans and the Nicaraguans, which, if you know the, the flow, the net flow of migration to Mexico is negative right now anyway from the U.S., so the the logic, the Trump logic is, is all wrong anyway. The other line, somebody said, what is the definition of fascism? This was, I think, on Dave Rubin. He said it's uh, communism under new management. Okay. That's or cute. better management That's or different management, something like that. <laughs> so, you know, oh, by the way, the... There was a liberal journalist who was, this was, uh, as per Ben Shapiro, a liberal journalist on the West Bank recently from the U.S., and he did some surveys and questioned, you know, talking to people, and he found almost no one there supports a two-state solution. They just want Israel to go away. There's zero support for a two-state. The two-state is just something they, they, they give lip service to when Europeans and Americans are around and the press is around, but... They don't actually believe it, and he couldn't find anyone to support that position. So no, and and, that, and that's the thing, you know. Netanyahu's first condition that he talks about, starting 24 minutes into this press conference from today, first condition is that the so-called Palestinians, and I'll keep saying so-called forever, uh, that they must recognize the right of Israel to exist, and they refuse to do that. And and one good thing that Trump did say during that conference was, you know, he emphasized that in the you know, Palestinian schools that they teach children from a very early age that Israel is horrible and doesn't have a right to exist. They indoctrinate those kids. Yep. Um, on the, on the, I think it's Mike Flynn. I thought about this a couple of weeks ago, you know, with Trump with his uh, little run-ins with the intelligence community, and I thought to myself, there's no way you pick a fight with the, the CIA or the equivalent in any country and win They've got all the information, and sure enough, it did, did not work out well for him. And it'll right. continue to, to go in that direction. He has to make friends with the intelligence community because they have all the cards and he does not. I mean, they, they have his back, so he has to somehow develop a good relationship with him, no matter what he does. He's supposed to be a pragmatist. Let's see what he has. He seems to be going through a sort of ego rupture, you know, too much investment in ego. Or, right. or fake fake ego, and he doesn't seem to be focused on the the real issues and gets sidelined so easily. It's so easy to distract him with the, the latest shiny object. Well, and that that's why I was worried when I was listening to him during this press conference, and he's you know talking about his anger about leaks from the intelligence community, and I'm in my mind getting afraid of him taking that out on Snowden using an example of Snowden as opposed to actually, you know, if if there are some people in the intelligence community, you're right that from a pragmatic perspective, he needs to make nice with the intelligence community as it's currently constituted. But Snowden, I mean, he's never going to be in our intelligence community again. He, you know, maybe Trump thinks he can make a great example of of Snowden. I don't know. Oh, you mean like a political scapegoat, just uh, like Mm -hmm. they do in some, like a a Trump-type trial sort of thing? 
Oh yeah. Like they do in some other countries, like like the Egyptian or Russian trials, fake trials. Exactly. Makes me scared. Anyway, I'm gonna let you go. You gotta you gotta sum up. So yeah, I got a couple other things time. to go. I appreciate your call, Harold, and I hope you okay, had fine. a good week as, as well. Take care. Um, okay, so going to the program notes at the blog, don'tletitgo.com, a couple more things. One is I put a link to an old blog post that just came up recently. I had a friend who was talking about the use of emoticons, and I think it's true that the use of emoticons has detracted from people's ability to use language to emphasize and to convey exactly what it is that they mean. I can get lazy sometimes when I'm in these messaging conversations with people and I notice that I'm putting too many smiley faces or this or that. And it's much better if you can actually emphasize things with language. That being said, there are certain situations in which even Ayn Rand seemed to want an emoticon to express herself. And that's the subject of that blog post. So I suggest you go check that out. And then I have one other thing, a fun little video. There's a couple guys called two cellos and they did a cello rendition of the muse song hysteria. And you will appreciate it more if you already like the song hysteria, like I do, I, I have declared muses hysteria to be the Aristotelian essence of the dance song. It's really a great song, in my opinion, for dancing. Uh, that's not an objectivist opinion officially at all. Far from it, right? Here I am in this nose ring. Um, but if you like that song, and even if you don't like that song, you will probably appreciate this little video. So go check that out. Don'tletitgo.com. Continue the conversation there. And um, I look forward to speaking to you guys next week, same time, Wednesday, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Pacific. Take care, everyone.